to Persuasion in the Public Mind. I'm Mark Bourdine. Up to this point, we've spent considerable time talking about various aspects of the persuasion process, including theory, advertising, persuasion and language, visual persuasion, and so on. For this, the final episode in this series, I think it might be appropriate to consider the role of media literacy and the reasoning process as it pertains to persuasive communication. Here to unpack some essential ideas about these topics are Michelle Lipkin, Executive Director of the National Association for Media Literacy Education, and Tim Borchers, author of Persuasion in the Media Age. We base our beliefs on evidence and reasoning. Reasoning is one way that persuaders give value to their products, services, or ideas. Professor Kathleen Hall Jameson suggests that traditional reasoning has been replaced by staged dramatization of images. It also seems to be the case that some persuaders today typically make assertions or engage in storytelling rather than present evidence or research to support their claims. So Tim, can you give us an example of how persuaders use visuals and narratives to enhance, intensify, or alter the meaning of their message? Sure. I think visuals can easily be seen in an example of political advertising. Uh, Political candidates surround themselves with with all kinds of images to help drive home the message that they're trying to create for voters. Uh, Sometimes they show themselves with their family, and that's trying to communicate that they are normal, everyday people who love their families and who have family support. Uh, Sometimes they're shown with their supporters at a rally, and that tries to build the argument that they are popular and that they have a lot of support and that the person watching should support them too. Sometimes they use uh, dramatic images. Maybe if they're trying to be hard on crime, they'll show pictures of, of criminals and try to make the argument that they're going to stand up to criminals and have uh, harsher laws than, than their opponents. And some of those images might be overly dramatic. Uh, they might be shaded with different kinds of colors to appear more sinister, but but really trying to to drive home the emotional point that the politician is trying to make with the advertisement. Mm-hmm. Of course, the most famous one of all, and I think I've, I've mentioned this previously, was the Daisy Girl ad where uh, an image of a young, young girl was uh, taken over by a, a nuclear uh, bomb cloud in its in its in its imagery and, mm-hmm. and so that went along with with some uh, dramatic uh, audio recording of a of a narration as well so all kinds of ways that that politicians use images in their advertisements and and those the reason they do that and the the reason that they they try to to use those images is they're trying to create an emotional impression uh, for the most part and that might be emotional impressions in support of the candidate uh, but also emotional uh, images trying to help them distinguish themselves from their opponent and trying to draw some some ground between there so all kinds of ways in, in when you're in a political season of, of looking at political advertisements for the kinds of images that they use but also politicians tell stories throughout their throughout their uh, messaging as as well and and a good example of that might be the, the political conventions that we always have this summer before a presidential candidate where the candidate is is introduced to the the public and sometimes the candidate's pretty well known but sometimes it's they're not quite as well known and and sometimes it's their their running mate the vice presidential candidate that 
that often people don't know. And, and so they, they often tell a, a very compelling story. And there have been examples of vice presidential candidates in, in recent years of, of disclosing a lot of personal information, maybe about something that they've gone through or something that their family has gone through. And those, those stories, again, are, are ways to um, provide proof for the, the point that they should be trusted, that they're honest, that they're, um, that they're family people, that they've experienced something that makes them particularly uh, qualified for the position. But oftentimes these, these stories that are emotional, that are self-disclosive, that really try to, to dramatize it yet personalize the candidate can be very effective. How do you go about evaluating a persuader's reasoning process in situations where visuals are the primary source of information and uh, where the narrative is the primary source of information? With visuals, uh, you, you have to sometimes read into what the, the point that they're trying to get across is because they, they just don't come right out and say it. So it's, it's, it can be a little bit more challenging with, with visuals. But whenever you're experiencing reasoning or, or an argument, it's always good to try to, to try to break it down a little bit to, to understand exactly how they're getting to the point. And, and the, the point is, is often called the claim or the kind of the statement that the persuader is making that they're trying to get the audience to agree with. And if you think about Apple products and some of the commercials and advertising around Apple products, they, they picture them as being very cool. Uh, they picture people who use Apple products as being very cool. And so obviously they're, they're trying to get you to, to think about the idea that if you purchase an Apple Watch or an iPhone or a MacBook computer, that you will be cool as well. So they're trying to really build some kind of, a, some kind of currency with the product itself, some kind of an idea that if you use this product, uh, you'll be hip, you'll be trendy, uh, you'll be efficient, you'll be able to work, get work done, and you'll be successful. So that's kind of the claim that they're trying to develop. So as you start to unpack that, then you can start asking yourself questions about the data they're using. And in this case, it might be uh, pictures. So it might be uh, people that, that society thinks are, are trendy or, or hip these days. Uh, it might be trying to figure out how that product communicates that it can help you be efficient or effective. And so you have to ask yourself those kinds of questions. You really need to separate yourself from, from being um, totally swayed by the, the cool imagery and, and try to dig a little bit deeper to ask yourself what is it that they're trying to get you to do and is there any basis for that. And then, and then really you need to, to think about how they're, they're using that data to support the claim that they're trying to make. And in the, in the case of Apple, they're really trying to, to make the claim that because um, these people are cool or trendy and Apple products are cool or trendy, that people who use Apple products are cool and trendy. And so they're, they're trying to get you to, to associate that, uh, the image the images that they show you with with the idea that that owning an Apple product is a is a good idea. So, mm -hmm. if you if you really think about the the overall claim that they're trying to make, obviously trying to get you to buy an Apple product, and then looking at all of the images around it, you need to to question whether those images are accurate, uh, whether they're truthful, whether they're communicating any kind of real information, or if they're just trying to appeal to your emotions or your senses, and then really trying to pick apart exactly what's that relationship. Between between those images and the claim that they're trying to make. So that's kind of how you would process some, some visual uh, advertisement. 
when it comes to narrative, you can do a, a very similar kind of process to to think about what the persuader is, is trying to, to get you to to believe. So if you think about a, a political speech, maybe a campaign speech that a politician might give, uh, the overall claim is that they're the ones who are worthy of your vote and that they're the best and most qualified candidate in the in the campaign. And so they will they will often tell stories to to kind of lead you to that point. So some of those stories, as I mentioned earlier, might be personal examples. And that personal example then becomes the data that they use. And that personal example might um, be very explicit, it might be very um, personal, it might be very self-disclosive, but they're trying to talk maybe about their background or something something that they experienced. Kamala Harris uh, was fairly effective with this in a recent debate with uh, other Democratic candidates when she talked about uh, growing up as an African-American uh, student and how she was subject to some of the laws at that time. And so that story, the data that she used, uh, was clearly trying to support the idea that she was the best candidate on the stage that night and trying to get the audience to to buy into it. And so if you think about some of the data that she used and the claim that, that she made, um, she was really using uh, what we would call argument by example, trying to show that she had examples from her experience that would that would lend to her overall insight into the position of president. So really trying to get us to think that because she's experienced this, she would have the kinds of uh, sensibilities, the kinds of policies, the kinds of empathy towards people that would help her be an effective president. So Kamala Harris, in, in that case, uh, really used that personal example as the data to support the claim that she was the best candidate because she had the kind of experience uh, both legally then later on in her life, but also personally as, as a child growing up that would help her be an effective candidate. This leads us to the broader topic of media literacy. In brief, media literacy is the ability to think critically about the information we consume and create. It includes the ability to distinguish fact from opinion and to understand how media can be used to persuade. Media literacy skills are especially important in a world where media and technology are everywhere. For this portion of our discussion, I've invited Michelle Lipkin, Executive Director of the National Association for Media Literacy Education. Namely's mission statement is to be the leading voice, convener, and resource to foster critical thinking and effective communication for empowered media participation. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Glad you could be here. Well, I do have some specific media literacy questions for you. I'd like to start out by getting your general definition for the terms media literacy and digital citizenship and ask what benefits we get as citizens by having media literacy skills. Sure. So the way that my organization, the National Association for Media Literacy Education, defines media literacy is it's the ability to access, analyze, evaluate, uh, create and act 
using all forms of communication. Mm -hmm. So we frame it as if it's an expanded definition of literacy in today's world. Um, so while print uh, text literacy is obviously a foundation of all literacies, um, we need to be literate in all forms of communication um, with all technology, um, really understanding how to consume an author uh, regardless of the, of the communication mode. Um, and the way that we look at digital citizenship is we actually see digital citizenship as a subset of media literacy that really looks at who we are, you know, our behavior, um, who we are as citizens in the digital space. Um, so digital citizenship is going to, you know, cover topics like um, privacy and uh, cyberbullying and really, you know, directly related with the digital part of life and how we are human beings in that digital space. Right. Um, when media literacy is much broader, right? Because media literacy focuses on all media um, and not all media is not digital, right? So it's it's a much broader, and, it, and it's looking at topics in, a, in an often different way. So the way that we look at it is media literacy is an umbrella, umbrella subject where digital citizenship falls underneath that. To look at the importance of media literacy and the impact of media literacy, I think it's really important for us simply to go to the impact and the importance of literacy. Mm -hmm. um, at this point in human history, we understand um, the benefits of being a literate citizen. Uh, we understand the disadvantages of being illiterate. Uh, there's uh, a plethora of studies about it and a plethora of evidence um, that states that literate people do better in their lives and in the world. And therefore, um, if we look at media literacy and the impact media literacy can have, um, we're looking at the, the same kind of context. We're looking at media literacy being a key component to being an active participant in society, that for those that are not media literate in today's world, they really are illiterate. And we know that being an illiterate citizen is a huge disadvantage. Um, certainly, with the way that our media ecosystem has changed so rapidly, uh, not only, you know, you could say just from radio and television how rapidly it's happened, but if you just simply look at the last 15 years, um, the, the speed at which we've seen change and the growth of information in quantity is so unprecedented, right? Like it's unprecedented. We've never seen this amount of change in, the, in this period of time, in this short a period of time. And so if you're looking at right now the importance of media literacy, you could argue that it, it's never been more urgent um, because simply the, the amount of information we have to sift through on a daily basis um, requires skills, you know, requires understanding about the landscape, about navigating that ecosystem. Um, so it's really a vital part of being an active and productive citizen. And, you know, what we obviously see is we're just, we're not doing enough of it, right? And we're not providing the education a lot of students need. And certainly we're not providing that education for those outside of the traditional, you know, education space, you know, older people, senior citizens, you know, how are they learning how to navigate the, the fast paced world when they haven't been in, in formal education in decades? Right. Sure, sure. So, uh, I mean, uh, essentially, uh, 
I, I think we could say that uh, we need to develop expertise, uh, additional expertise to to kind of deal with uh, an increasingly uh, sophisticated uh, form of information and entertainment uh, within uh, the media system. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I don't and I think that it's really important, though, to continue to focus not only on the forms that have changed, right, the way that we construct media and deliver media is very different. Um, this last decade, but also, again, I can't stress enough the, the sheer amount of it, sure. right? The sheer amount of media um, content that exists is is just mind-boggling. Oh, it's, yeah, <laughs> and it's how do we even sure. begin? Yeah, how yeah. do we even begin to to kind of navigate that? And and at this point, media truly is the most influential message that we as human beings receive, uh, and therefore. It is impacting everything we do and who, how we, how we live, how we, where we live, what we do for our work, what causes we believe in, who we vote for. It's impacting all of these things, um, and it's building. These messages are building who we are as human beings. Mm-hmm. So it's vital that we understand it and we understand who is the, you know, where's, you know, follow the money. Who's making these messages? Who's in charge of the narrative? Where is this information coming from? How how am I supposed to interpret this? And and how am I supposed to interact with it um, effectively and, you know, actively as opposed to just being kind of a passive uh, receiver? Like we can't – we live in a participatory culture now, so we need to participate. And in order to fully participate, we have to understand media. It seems to me that whenever we watch or listen to news, advertising, or entertainment, we're always confronted with some combination of fact, opinion, and emotion – if we wanted to construct an informed view about a given topic uh, presented to us by media, it seems appropriate that we have certain guidelines or questions we would ask ourselves that would serve to clarify or decode the media message. So I'm wondering if you can run through the most important questions we might ask. Yes, yeah, so um, I, I want you to know that really, truly, you've hit on the core of media literacy practice, right, is, mm-hmm. is, the, is the habit of inquiry, is how can we always be asking questions, right? How can, how can our reaction to media messages always start with, with questions? And so there's a lot of different organizations that have really good resources in, um, in kind of key questions that you can ask. We, too, have uh, key questions to ask when analyzing media messages. And the way that we separate these, these um, questions are in three categories, audience and authorship, messages and meanings, and representations and reality. So if you look at audience and authorship, we're looking at questions like who made this message, who paid for it, who might benefit, and who might be harmed by it. And this is really about where does the message come from and what is the purpose of the message? And oftentimes, as we know, that leads to the money, right? And Mm -hmm. you want to understand that road to the money. And then when you look at messages and meanings, you're looking more at, you know, what what is it about? What are the ideas, the information that is clear, what's also left out of the message that might be important to know. Um, To me, that question, what is left out, is probably one of the most significant questions we can ask ourselves because there is always something being left out. And Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily evil intent that is having that 
message be incomplete. It's simply the way that media is constructed. We only have so many minutes in a newscast. We only have so many pages in a newspaper, right? There are limits to media construction. So we need to know that there's always something being left out and we need to be um, curious about that. And also just the techniques, you know, what techniques are used, what visual techniques, what sound techniques, how are they communicating the messages? And then, of course, we have the bigger, uh, maybe not the bigger, but a significant portion of questions need to be on representations and reality. You know, is this fact? Is this opinion? Is this something else? Mm-hmm. All right. What is the source of the information? How credible is this? And what makes you think that, right? So we look, I teach um, Brooklyn College journalism students, and you can ask a group of journalism students how they figure out or how they perceive credibility. And they all have a different path to what they think is credible. And they they also struggle with this idea of what what identification does this particular piece of information have and we're living in a time where we're very we're very happy to put information either in kind of the fake you know the fake news the fake information and the true factual information sure. when we have to recognize that the the core or the the majority of information out there today is somewhere in the middle of those, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're not only thinking about credibility, we're thinking about bias, right? We're thinking about point of view, perspective, and um, and really trying to reflect on how might this message be different to another person? Like, how would a different person interpret this message? And that is another really important question because then you start to understand how you're impacted differently um, and how you can think about things differently simply because of, you know, the way that you, you know, the way that you have been brought up, the the messages that you have received, the life that you've led is going to lead people to different different assessments of media messages. Oh, for sure. There are different uh, cultures involved here, uh, different backgrounds uh, as far as upbringing is concerned. And so, yeah, that's a a big factor. Yeah, it's so interesting to me, especially when I teach, you know, so many people uh, at Brooklyn College are from different um, ethnicities and different backgrounds, different countries, and just what, you know, those moments where they realize that, um, these thoughts aren't universal, <laughs> that everyone comes from their different perspective. You know, that's, you know, for a lot of us that are older, we obviously know that. We've been thinking about that for decades. But when you start to see teacher, I'm sorry, when you start to teach people and you start to see people have that realization um, that not everyone feels the same way about this particular show or this particular newscast or this particular personality, um, it's really, it's fascinating to watch them realize that. Let's uh, move on to a term we hear a lot these days, which is fake news. We could define that term as any information that is deliberately meant to be largely false or misleading. While I think most of us have a pretty good idea what motivates people to create fake news, I'd like to get your take not only on the motivations for it, but how we can spot it, especially as it pertains to the Internet. I think that, um, you know, that's a, a, obviously a very huge uh, question, and I think mm-hmm. that it is really important to 
make the distinction that fake news is really deliberate, right? You know, because I think that there's been some misunderstanding in the public about that, that that there is a difference between misinformation and disinformation. There are a lot of misinformation out there, and oftentimes that misinformation isn't necessarily deliberate. It could be inaccurate. It could be um, outdated. You know, there's a million things that could lead to being misinformed. Um, But disinformation and fake news, that deliberate part of it, um, and that it, you know, it can be related to to things like hoaxes and conspiracy theories, um, that is, uh, you know, really important distinction to make. I, you know, the, you have to remember, and not to maybe simplify a very complicated target, mm-hmm. that most um, most things that are made in the media are made with the purpose of making money, right? It's a, pro- a for-profit business. Yeah, I would say so that's most, number one, right? Yeah, that's what that's what it's there for. It's mm-hmm. a it's a it's a big, huge corporate uh, monopoly, right? On mm-hmm. our on our information and. A lot of the fake news, um, if you just look at what just happened a few years ago in 2016, you know, we know uh, obviously the fake news and uh, disinformation has been around a lot longer than the 2016 election. But what you saw was um, just the quantity of it and the speed of it that we'd never seen before. And that was really triggered by finances, right? It was triggered by these groups of of people that were creating content to get people's attention. They were getting people's attention and then they were making a crap load of money off of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the cycle begins. So I think we have to remember that, um, you know, fake news often leads back to money. Um, And then of course there's deliberate, you know, deliberate persuasion. There's deliberate propaganda to get your point of view, your perspective out there in the world. Um, And a lot of that you can see in like fear mongering and you see in debates, in very political debates, whether it's something like gun control or abortion, these really, really uh, tricky, complicated topics that people have very strong opinions about. You can see a lot of fake news around those because people are trying to influence opinion. Um, but then even that, even that is usually led, led back to money in some way. Um, there wouldn't be the amount of fake news if it wasn't a money-making operation. Let's be honest, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there'd be some of it. There'd be some um, created simply deliberately cause chaos cause um, discontent or, or kind of disconnections in, in communities. If you, you know, so much of propaganda is to kind of cause rifts within a community of some kind. So yes, there'd be that. But if it weren't a money-making operation, you wouldn't see it like you see it now. And that's one of the things we really, I think, have to reckon with as a, as a society. Mm-hmm. And as you know, and when you start to think about regulations and all of that, so I'm not sure if that answered your question. Well, it certainly uh, uh, addresses the first part of the the question. Um, then we kind of move on to uh, ways to spot it. Uh, that is uh, oh, fake yes, news and and uh, what what to look for uh, as it pertains to uh, the internet. Mostly, uh, have any thoughts on that? Yes, sure. And and at this point in time, again, there's a lot of work, um, really good work being done on very specific tips around this. For example, like the uh, the Museum Ed um, website, News Literacy Project, Center for News Literacy, Common Sense. You know, there's a lot of really great information out there for those interested in, 
you know, how do they make sure, how do they protect themselves from disinformation? Also, some really good videos and content out there that, um, you know, you can share with younger people in your life, your children. Um, but I think, you know, the most, there's some really easy things you can do. Um, and some of them is just as simple as, you know, the URL and making sure it's a legitimate site and making sure that it's, um, you know, during the 2016 election, there were a lot of kind of fake news sites that were created. So it would be, for example, instead of abc.com, it would be abc.com.co, you know, like mm-hmm. that's a, that's not a, that's not a URL that's associated with the actual American broadcasting company. And so really checking your URLs, checking the, the, information, what is the source of the information, Um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of tips out there about making sure that the author is, is listed, that there's um, a source that's um, connected with the information. Um, I think that some of it is also identifying clickbait, right? Identifying headlines and stories that are so clearly exaggerated um, or either too bad, you know, to be true or too good to be true. Mm -hmm. Those things usually are those things, right? Is that, um, and so knowing, um, you know, that, that they're trying to get your attention and the harder something is trying to get your attention, it is very possible that the further it is away from the truth. Uh, And I think that's a really important um, thing to note. When I look at, you know, combating the spread of fake news, I think that even if our simplest practice as human beings that are involved in kind of the social media community, even if it was simply not to share something unless you know it's true, um, we would stop the spread of of a great majority of misinformation and disinformation. Mm -hmm. And in order to know it's true, you know, if you can't find another site that's talking about it, if you can't find other sources, if you, if you don't see it any other place, if what is the source, you know, what is this a website? Is this a blog? Is this an actual, you know, news outlet? Um, If you don't have the time to do a little digging, then you probably shouldn't be sharing at all. And I think that if we could realize that, um, that it's not worth the share, uh, especially if it's just the headline that's making us share, um, I think that's something that we can do to curb misinformation. I think what's also interesting is how, you know, how people, a lot of times people are inadvertently duped, right? You know, it's, it's all those things that we've, we've seen talked about in the, in the news and in conversations since the 2016 election, like confirmation bias, you believe what you want to believe. Um, you know, I, to this day, you know, I will see, you know, very intelligent, educated folks on Facebook that I follow share something um, that's not true, or that doesn't seem, seems a little peculiar, and I'll do a little digging, I'll do a Google reverse search, you know, image search, which mm-hmm. is something I should have men- mentioned. That's a really, really good tool. Um, and I recently did that on someone that, that shared a picture that was supposed to be of young children in immigration detention centers. And it just, there was something about it that's like, this just looks old. This doesn't look right. These don't look like the the same kids. And I did a quick Google search, you know, a Google reverse image search, and it was clear that it wasn't. And so I very graciously put that out there on Facebook. And I said, I hate to, you know, I don't want to be the media literacy police, 
but you should know that this is what this image is, and I shared a little information about it. And, you know, we need to be willing to do that. We need to be, like, a little bit um, responsible for each other because the person who shared that wasn't – she wasn't trying to spread information that was false. She wasn't trying to um, create a problem. Um, it's just that things move so fast that sometimes we just we don't pause and, and we don't have a moment to think. And so we all have to kind of be there. I think we have to work a lot harder together. <laughs> we have to you know, recognize that a lot of this stuff is often done not with the worst intention. So we have some special areas of influence uh, specific to the Internet that are worth talking about. We call them memes, bots, and algorithms, and they can be used to either spread or limit information in a rather unnatural and sometimes unethical way. Just in general terms, I'm wondering if you can give us a sense of what this technology is designed to do and its potential for influence. So I will, in full transparency, I'm, I'm hardly a technologist um, and, and really, truly um, understand the, the depth of, of how, you know, how these things work from the ground up. Um, but in, in general, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we have, uh, you know, algorithms are essentially um, taking a look at our patterns um, and their individual patterns and also community patterns, um, depending on the platform. And they're essentially um, creating a, a footprint, a digital footprint of what we do and making an incredible amount of assumptions about what we like, what we care about, um, who we are engaged with. Um, and then they, you know, quote unquote, read that information to give us more information, right? So uh, the very simplest level, you can think about your Netflix feed and how, or your Netflix list and how you over the course of time will have watched a movie, a romantic comedy or, you know, friends episodes. And all of a sudden you'll start to see things you might like, right? So that's the algorithm kind of uh, learning about you, right? Right. Now that's one way. Then there's also uh, the much more I think, influential way, which is Google searches and um, uh, Facebook followers and Twitter followers, where they really start to build uh, what they think you want, right? They build your portrait online. And so those algorithms try to read your patterns and your behaviors, and then they try to feed you the information that you, they think you would like. Now, that's also a money-making business, right? Because mm. the algorithm is really built for advertisers. Um, social media is a for-profit business. So the Facebook algorithm is ultimately to gather your data so that they can send, you know, they can sell more advertising that's more effective because it's more targeted. And so they're really building your profile. You know, they're like... If you think of it as uh, they're really in a lot of ways stalking us, right? They're mm-hmm. they're watching our every move, and then they're determining um, what information, what advertisements, what what should be shared with us, and that's when we get filter bubbles and we get echo chambers because we just get fed the things that we already like, we already talk about, we already care about. Well, yeah, um, essentially uh, what I think what you're uh, leading up to here is that uh, some of the search results uh, that uh, we may uh, be presented with uh, does not really represent uh, diverse points of view. At all. 
right. at all because because it's it's targeted at us, right? It's targeted at the individual. Right. Um, and what is it's very interesting because I was on a panel yesterday about. Um, media literacy for senior citizens, which is fascinating. And they, we were talking a lot about algorithms and talking about how can we change the filter bubble. And, you know, we can't unless the business model changes. Right. But I think um, what we under, uh, have to understand just in the context of bots is that oftentimes there are not real people uh, behind the likes, the follows, the um, the activity on social media, and that is something that I think became incredibly clear to us after the 2016 election, um, or I should say, incredibly clear to the general public, because I think a lot of the issues that came up in the 2016 election was cle- were clear to people that were, you know, in the media space and thinking about these things um, prior. But it really, you know, the 2016 election obviously put a lot of this stuff in the spotlight. So I think when you think of bots, it's just to realize how much is happening on social media and on the internet that has no direct human, you know. Uh, contact. Mm-hmm. And that's really important to know. And I think it's really especially important for our young generation to know, um, you know, especially because they're, they, they're growing up in a, in a culture of likes and followers and, and numbers and popularity. Uh, and just to understand that a lot of the times it isn't actual human beings behind it. Got it. Well, uh, Michelle, I'm going to post some information about NAMLE on the podcast webpage, but maybe you can give us an idea of the range of services offered by the various media literacy groups. Great. So our organization, um, we actually call ourselves Namely, um, but it's great because N-A-M-L-E dot net is our, indeed our um our website, and we are the umbrella organization for U.S. media literacy. So within our organization, we have about 6,000 members, and we also have about 50 organizational partners. And if you simply go to our organizational partner page, which is under the community tab, you will see just an incredible um, variety of organizations that are connected to the media literacy space. So we have organizations that do uh, direct service in school, you know, organizations that go in and do residencies uh, in schools, do youth media in schools, do journalism in schools. We have organizations that uh, work more focused on the older generation and parenting in the digital age. We have organizations that work on professional development. So they're focused on teacher development and teacher training to help support media literacy practice in the classroom. We have organizations that are focused on journalism education, organizations that are focused on uh, media education, so really hands-on production. Um, We have organizations that are doing film uh, education and incorporating media literacy. And so we are seeing media literacy happen in the classroom, after school, in camps, in public libraries, at the university level, at the high school, middle school, elementary school level, in a lot of different forms. We also see 
you know, one of our partners is KQED Education, which is the PBS affiliate in San Francisco. They have probably one of the most robust um, resources uh, collection for media literacy around. Uh, we have the museum within our community who has an incredible ed program and lots of resources for teachers, including PBS NewsHour in our partner um, list and PBS uh, Student Reporting Labs, the News Literacy Project, which I mentioned already. So there's a variety of ways to go about media literacy in schools and outside of schools, so kind of informal and formal education, and within our community are all of these different types of models. Um, so it's very interesting um, to see how different people integrate media literacy into their institutions and their classrooms and their communities. And so I would recommend, um, you know, going to our community page and our organizational partners and checking, you know, uh, checking out some of these partners to just see the wide variety of information that is out there. Well, good, uh, good information, Michelle. And uh, thanks again for uh, being on the podcast today. Oh, it's great. I thank you so much. And I'm always so pleased when when we give media literacy and these kind of discussions the attention that they deserve. So thank you for being interested. And that will do it for this podcast series. I'd like to thank Tim Borchers and Michelle Lipkin for participating today, and I hope you will check into the variety of resources listed under each episode description. Continue to be aware, stay involved, and ask questions. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.